And what we're going to look at is kind of some, some survival tips. They're grouped under four areas. And if you have a question, if you don't mind, just typing it in the chat box, and uh, I'll be get to them as we get through here. But as we advertise this, we said we'd look at four issues very quickly. One is how do you get your faculty behind you when you're moving to goals? And I need to say a couple things about my backgrounding. If you don't know it, some of you will care about this and some of you won't, okay? So you have a couple minutes to have a fantasy if you don't want to hear it. But I was a principal in a school in Illinois, and I was also a high school department chair and worked in regional service centers with over 100 school districts. So I want to talk a little bit about what you have to do. And the, the things I'm going to give you are pretty quick and dirty. Um, you don't have lots of time in the principalship. And so I want to tell you some key kind of things that you have to figure out when you're trying to get your staff behind you. And they, you don't always find this stuff in books, okay? First of all, one of the things that was most helpful to me when I was a principal was this work by Bruce Showers and uh, Beverly Joyce about who's in your faculty. And so in their research, they found that about 10% of your audience is omnivores. These are teachers who just love it, and they'll do it the minute they hear it. 10% are active receivers. They'll do it, but they want a little bit of time, okay? 70% are passive receivers. And the research is that they actually need two things in order to um, do what you're asking them to do. One is support, and the other one is insistence. So they won't do it unless they're supported and there's some level of insistence. Um, and then 10% of them are reluctant receivers. They're not even going to do it if God's standing behind them with a whip, okay? Well, one of the things that happens in schools is a lot of times we don't move ahead on an initiative because of the 10% reluctant receivers. And so what I'm going to say to you is that to move ahead on an initiative, you've got to get critical mass of your staff. And critical mass is around 40 to 50 percent. So if you go back to the former slide, you can actually get your omnivores with you right away, particularly if that's a good idea. You can get your active receivers with you. That's 20 percent. You can get half of your passive receivers, which is another 35 percent. So you can get 55 percent of your staff moving in the same direction. And that's a critical mass uh, kind of thing. And it will help you then move ahead. Now, a question I get a lot from people is, what do you do with the reluctant receivers who often show up in your staff as critical bull as as uh, faculty bullies? Okay, you know who they are, and they a lot of times want to impede any movement toward the goal. So one of the things that I did with them is when I was a principal, I had two faculty bullies. Um, one of them had been moved from building to building uh, for 10 years. He'd actually put a uh, principal in psychiatric care for 10 years. Um, but one of the things I did is the first year, we always considered a year of implementation where we were trying things. So if I had somebody come to me and say, you know, I just hate it. I'm not going to do it. I think it's horrible. I'll say, well, I really respect that opinion, but we are going to go ahead and move with this and try it. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is try it and come and tell me all the things that you think are wrong with it, because then that way we will get good feedback. And uh, so I really need you because you have such a strong voice and, and such a uh, 
critical voice, and so we need you in this. And so in that way, I would get it moving uh, and get their involvement usually without, they usually came in and criticized me. This particular uh, faculty bully came, he, he was so unhappy, I said, you know, you've been talking about me in the lounge, and I I can't really hear what you need to say, so why don't you come in my office once a week on Thursday morning and tell me everything I did wrong all week so that I can correct it if I think it needs to be corrected. And that way I got his feedback and he felt like he was being heard. So once you get critical mass, which is 40, 50, 55% moving in that direction, then you can get momentum. And then the next thing you want to do is this. You have to use simpler processes that take less time, that involve more people. And I think one of the things that happens is that I've seen several school improvement programs in the 40 years I've been in the business. And I have to tell you, most of them are so complicated, okay, that people can't do them because there's not enough time. It takes too many people, too much time to get it on board so it fails. So when I say simpler processes, what I mean is that they have to be processes that don't take more than, um, there's, you know, they take very little time during the school year and they're done collaboratively so that you get on paper what you need to know and then you move on. If you make them too complicated, too many checklists, they don't work. Like, for example, I was in Georgia. I don't know if I have anybody here on uh, from Georgia, but they, I was working with the 80 teachers of the year in Georgia. Georgia implemented about four or five years ago a 24-page teacher evaluation instrument, and the principals had to use it three times a year. It was just not a doable system, so there was all kinds of lapses simply because it couldn't be done. It was too complicated. Um, so when you look at the processes you're using, are they usable, are they simple, are they to the point, um, and do they move? The next thing we look at then is focusing on only a couple things a year. I worked with one principal in uh, Iowa. He had a low-performing um, school, and this was his last year to get an uh, achievement moving up, or he was going to be replaced. And I came in to work with him, and he said, well, I have 70 initiatives I'm going to do this year. I know I can hear some of you laughing already, okay? I said, there's no possible way to do 70 initiatives. He said, yes, there is. I said, no, it's not. So finally, rather than argue with him, I said, all right, I need you to get out a calendar, and let's put all these initiatives on the calendar, and you tell me how it's going to happen. And he realized right away that he couldn't. So one of the ways that we use to help faculties and staffs decide whether or not they can actually do what they said they were going to do in their site-based plan or their school improvement plan is before the school year ever starts, we draw out a calendar for the school year and we put initiatives on there. First, we do it by month. So let me just say a little bit about this. First of all, you're not going to get anybody to come back in July unless you're year-round, okay? So if you take the month of August, draw a line halfway through it, 
you're only going to get half of that in a year, okay? Because half of August to start because people are actually trying to get school started. September's a good month to do initiatives. October's a good month. By the time you get to November, holidays have started, so cross off half that much. December, you're not going to get anything done. January, you come back second semester. You get half that month because people are starting a new semester. February is a good month. March is a good month. By April, everybody's mad at everybody and you're testing. And May, people kind of said goodbye. June, only the omnivores come back. So what we do is we say you basically have two and a half months first semester and two and a half months second semester to get your stuff done. Then we put it on a calendar by week. And then you give that to your week, your secretary so that they put in the weekly memo what has to be done that week. And that way, it's on the calendar, it gets done. And then what we do in addition, I have another tip for you here, is get your superintendent behind you. One of the techniques of a successful principal is that they manage the people above them. And so I want to give you a tool I gave to I used when I was a principal. And here's what it was. I went into my superintendent every summer and I would say this to him. You know, I here are five or six things I need to do in my building to improve achievement. But I said to him, you have 14 principals, okay? And you you can't take that much heat at the board table for 14 principals, each doing all the things they want to do. So I said, I need your backing at the board table as well. So I need you to tell me which of these five things I can work on this next year. You will know they'll probably show up at the board table, and you will be able to back me. And he would pick out a couple each year that I could work on. That way, he knew when I came to the table, my issues came to the table, he knew to back them, and he did. So as you start getting your goals, your faculty moving ahead, you have to get critical mass. You have to use simpler processes. You have to get it on a calendar, okay? And you have to get your superintendent's backing. In some ways, those are no-brainers. But I can't tell you how many buildings I've been in where those things have not happened. So I'm going to stop right now before we move to the next section, which is about achievement, and ask you to put in the chat room any comments or questions that you have about what I've said so far. Uh, Marlisa asked, initiatives, what type? Whatever your goals are for the year, for example, are you going to, um, if you're going to raise your reading scores, then specifically that's the initiative you worked on. You break it down, you identify the tasks, and you then begin to get it. The other thing I didn't say is that we embed it. I'll talk about embedding next. But when you embed, the best way to embed then is to um, use um, subs, roving subs, and I'm going to talk about embedding with using roving subs um, because you have to embed. So 
I'm going to move now to achievement and some key components. Uh, and then we have, if you downloaded the handout, you will got that as well. But first of all, when we work with schools to help them improve achievement, one of the things I see right off the bat is that they will confuse accountability with achievement. They're not the same things. And one of the things we don't have time today, but I could give you a long history of how we got where we are. But basically, the bottom line is this. Accountability is a numbers game. It's about the composite numbers. It's not about individual achievement. It is indirectly, but not really. Accountability is always about excellence, which is, did the norm, are you above the norm, the majority? Your equity, your subgroups, and are you making growth? And one of the things I'll say then, what we know is that if you want to get your accountability scores up, which is how you're rated to the public, you have to look at your students first, then the standards. One of the biggest mistakes I see when I uh, work with campuses around the U.S. is they want to look at the standards. Which standards did we do well? Which standards did we not do well on? That's good, and you want to do that, but that's not the first thing you want to do. The first thing you want to look at is your students, because accountability is about numbers. Now, I don't care what state you're in, and I know with Race to the Top, and I know with all the changes in Common Core, and all the people backing off of Common Core, and states going back to their own thing, etc. But what you have to look at is accountability systems, regardless of what state you're in, basically have three characteristics. How is your group doing as a whole in relationship to all the other groups? Number two, what are your subgroups doing? And number three, are you making growth? Now what the testing companies will tell you over and over again is you cannot measure growth accurately unless you do it either in quartiles or quintiles. So that's why all the states have four or five categories basically. Okay, meets expectations, above expectations, excellent, or like Florida uses A, B, C, D, F, or um, all these states use something different. But the bottom line, that's the only accurate way to measure growth. And state assessments, even though they use different terminology, are tied either to quintiles or quartiles. And so what we do as a principal at the elementary, by grade level, we use this grid you see in front of you. You have each teacher identify first by race the child's performance, and you do one test at a time. In elementary, we do reading and math. Secondary, it's end of course stuff, okay? And you look at by name. We put the children in the grid by grade level by name. In other words, if, he, if Johnny's Caucasian and he was in that top quartile or quintile, his name goes there, okay? If he was also low socioeconomic status, his name goes there. If he also has got a, uh, a learning disability, his name goes in SE, special education. And he might be a limited language, second language speaker. His name would go there as well. What we do then is this. What the principal does is the principal counts kids, children, 
Okay, because what you have to know is your accountability data is going to be based on numbers of students. So what we do is if you have 100 students at a grade level, let's suppose we look at how many of those 100 students are in the top two quartiles. That tells you basically how you're going to show up at your, with your public. And let me just say there, we have a rule that I want to tell you about. You need to have 80% of your students in the top two quartiles or groups, however your state names them, if you are going to do well to the public. And then we look at two things. How many students count multiple times? And do we have 80% of each subgroup in the top two quartiles? And if not, who are you going to move? Because what this gives you is a snapshot picture of what your accountability scores are going to look like. And I have to tell you that I know more than one principal who takes a piece of chart paper in their office by grade level, they take those little one-by-one-inch sticky notes, and they put kids' names. And every six weeks with their formative assessments, they look to see who's moving where and when. Because that's how you're going to know how you look on accountability. I'm going to stop right here and see if you have any questions. And while you're ch uh, typing in, I have to say one thing. This is a step that I see secondary schools do not like to do because they keep track of students by uh, course and by grade. And you have to look at this or you don't know what it is. Okay, I'll write in the, I'll write in the chat box. You want 80% of each subgroup. And then what we do is we ask, who do we need to move? And we ask, how many, how many students count twice? I worked with a um, school, an elementary school, that had um, the third and fourth grader teachers were fighting over which grade level got the aid. Well, they realized that between the third and fourth grade, they only had seven students that were actually keeping them from being uh, recognized. And so what they did is they decided to split the A between the seven students. It's highly focused. And yes, Yvonne, some of the students show up multiple times. And what we find over and over again in buildings is that a lot of times it's a handful of students that are keeping them from the next level they need to move to and they just haven't looked at it in a very analytical way and so one of the things we start looking at is it's a numbers game and you're being held accountable against numbers so we look at that first because that tells you about accountability I worked with a middle school they had uh, they were low performing, and if they didn't improve, they were going to be uh, taken over the next year. And so I made all the seventh grade teachers, because this was the level we were working at, 
And what we did was I had them take their class roster, the seventh grade roster that the state said they were responsible for all those students. They went around in their grade books and checked off each student they had. When we got done, out of 300 seventh graders, there were 20 students that nobody had. I said, wait a minute. Those students are counting, okay? So where are they? Nobody could find them. They weren't in special ed. They weren't in second language. They weren't anywhere. So we finally found out this. They were skipping class. If they didn't like that particular teacher, they went to 7-Eleven for that period of time. So one of the things that's really important in this accountability is do you know who you're accountable for, where are your numbers, and where are they? ITBS, Cindy, you're using first and second, and we use Dibbles for reading. How could we adapt this to help us raise our reading performance? We will also be using ITBS this year. I would use ITBS, okay? Or the other thing we do at first and second grade is we use a, uh, a practice test very similar to the real test, or we use Dibble scores, and we just divide them into four groups, or sometimes schools work with three groups in first and second grade, high, middle, low, and we begin then to see who we have to move, who's going to count multiple times for us, and we use those. Now, once you know this, then you've got a much better handle on what's going to happen to you accountability-wise, okay? And what we do then is we, the second thing you have to do is you have to tie your standards to your content and your content to time. I want to explain why this is critical. If you don't know this, you don't literally know where to go back in and, and change things. Let me give you an analogy. It's like wanting to have more money and do your budget better, but having no concept of what you're spending your money on right now, okay? One of the things that's happened in several schools is that they have started using computer-based programs to generate the lesson plans for the day. Like, for example, one thing in Texas that's used quite a bit is C-scopes. So the teacher will type in the objective for the day, Print out the activities. The problem with that is this. If you don't tie the standards to content, it has no meaning. One of the, it, let me give you an analogy. It would be like a football coach that did practice every day on drills, but the football players never played a game. Pretty soon they're disinterested. They just don't care anymore. And so it has to be tied to content before there's meaning. Then you have to tie the content to time. How much time are we going to spend on this? Okay. And given that amount of time, were we successful? Did 70% of students get this? The reason you have to do that is that you have to know that you spent the time on the key objectives that were being tested. Now, one of the things I think is, one of the mistakes I've made is thinking that everybody does this, and they don't. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many buildings I'm in right now who, they don't have pacing guides. <clears throat> they just run to the computer and print off the lesson for the day. 
you can't have high achievement if you're not knowing. How, what are we going to get taught this year? How much time are we going to spend on it? And um, did we cover the standards? For me, it's such a simple concept, but I'm finding that it's not always being used. Once you know that, then, the next thing you have to do is you have to calibrate student work to standards. And this is the step that I see almost all schools not addressing. If you don't look at student work, you have no concept of what they're doing. And if you don't know what they're doing, you can't get high achievement. In fact, when I was a high school department chair, the way we raised achievement really quickly was to go to much more difficult student work. And what happens is it automatically raises achievement because you're requiring more from students. Uh, one of the studies they did in California is they found that the, uh, in low-performing schools at the fifth grade level, only 2% of the student work was on grade level. They couldn't figure out why these schools were low-performing. They were all doing the objectives. They all had pacing guides. And then when they looked at student work, they realized this was the problem. I was in a sixth grade classroom in a low-performing middle school in Indiana, and the sixth grade teacher had written on the board the objective was to identify character development in literature. But what the students were doing for an assignment was coloring in a coloring book. No, you're never going to get there with that assignment. And student work is where you look at higher level thinking. Student work is where you look at the expertise of the content. Student work is where you look at um, the rigor of the, uh, the particular assignment. Student work is key. And when I was working with these um, educators in uh, Georgia who had the 24-page teacher evaluation instrument, and so I said to several of them, and remember, these are teachers of the year. I said, tell me what you're doing with student work. How are you looking at it? Are you calibrating the difficulty level? And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, is the work calibrated to the level of difficulty? I said, for example, when I started, was I became the department chair at high school, a book they were reading at the 12th grade for college-bound seniors was The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I said, no, uh-uh, that has no, that's inappropriate. Okay, and so people ask me a lot, how do you calibrate student work? Well, here's how I did it. You can do it how you wish. But I had my high school teachers take either the verbal or math SAT or ACT test. Now, they were furious. I, they said, you're trying to prove we're stupid. I said, I have no idea how you did. You scored your own papers. I said, we're calibrating to the level of difficulty our 11th graders have to perform on in order to get into college. So we have to know what that is. And then you calibrate middle school work to the ninth grade end of course tests or the ninth grade test. You calibrate elementary work by looking at the grade level above. And you begin to see what kinds of assignments do we have to do in order to meet this level of difficulty. What are the thinking skills? So that's how you calibrate. And 
we'll probably do another webinar later this year simply on calibration of student work. So uh, we, how you do that, because as I'm working with individuals, they're not sure how you do that. And we have expertise rubrics. Um, here's how you figure out if students are moving to expertise uh, against content and the level of thinking in that content. So we'll be sharing those. I'm going to share with you in just a minute some rubrics around uh, principal and teacher expertise. Then you have to use some sort of formative assessment. Now, almost all schools do this. They have formative assessment. But let me tell you one thing I ran into last year at a high school. I said, are you testing the students? They said, yes, twice a week on the computer against the standards. I said, okay. So what are you doing with the test results? They looked at me and they said, we don't get to see them. I said, you don't get to see your test results? They said, no. I said, and the students don't see them? They said, no. I said, so what would be the purpose? And they said, we have to test. So please, if you do formative assessment, need to look at the results, okay? Um, and then one of the biggest problems, particularly at secondary, is that the two systems are not tied together. So let, let me talk about that one. Typically, it could be STAR, that's Texas. It could be anything. It could be Common Core, whatever. We do formative testing, formative testing, formative testing, and then we go to the state assessment, okay? But we have a second system we run within our schools, and it's this. We have the standards, we have lesson plans, we have assignments, and we give grades. The two systems are not connected. And so what you have to do if you want truly high achievement, if you have to, they have to be connected, okay? You have Common Core, Star, or whatever it is that you're using, okay? They have to be connected to the lesson plans, but they also have to be connected to the student work, the assignments, to the formative assessments, to the grades, to the state assessments, and this and then needs to be connected to are you moving students to expertise. And when we do the uh, webinar on, on uh, uh, student work and moving them to expertise, I'll discuss that in more detail. But the bottom line is they're not linked right now. And particularly in many secondary schools, um, the disconnect creates huge issues. The sixth thing you have to do is you have to target interventions. So here's what you know so far. You know what got taught. You know how you stand on accountability measures, number one. Number two, you know what got taught and whether or not it's tied to standards and how much time you spend on it. The third thing you have to know is, is the student work calibrated to the to the, the standard? The fourth thing you have to know is, how did our students do formative assessment? Then you have to tie your systems together. And then you have to look at targeted intervention. In other words, you have to analyze the student's resources to figure out what's actually going to work. And we have a book called Research-Based Strategies, which is on the web, page, web website. 
and you can use it. It diagnoses what when a student can't do this or this or this. Here's some strategies that will help you do that. And then the last thing is you have to move people to growth. Now, one of the things that's in your handout is something I wrote for beginning teachers, five years of experience or less. One of the biggest problems when you're a beginning learner at anything is that you don't know what to pay attention to, and everything floats around in details. And more importantly, you don't know where you're moving to. So what I wrote up, regardless of the, the system that you use, I wrote this instrument out for you to use to coach teachers as you move them along. In other words, if they have this concept for themselves, they will begin to think about this concept for their students. And so here's what an expert teacher has to pay attention to. And really, if you do more than seven categories, the mind can't remember it. It's, it's too many. Okay, so are, is your classroom safe and culturally competent? Are you paying attention to student achievement? Do you have content expertise? Because without that, you can't get the higher level thinking. Do you know how you intervene? Like, for example, I always know when I'm de beginning dealing with a novice, they'll say things like, well, I treat them all the same. No, <laughs> I'll say to them, well, you wear glasses, so I think tomorrow I'll require that every teacher in the building wear glasses, your same prescription. And they go, well, that would be stupid. I say, exactly. They're not the same. So we really have to target how we do our interventions. Um, and then we look at how they're, they're teaching, their paperwork, are, are they doing that, and how are they interacting with parents. Now, it's a quick and dirty overview, but when I do this with beginning teachers, I have them highlight with one color highlighter where they think they are. I highlight with another color highlighter where I think they are. And then we talk about, as a coaching activity, how are you going to move the needle? How are you going to begin to develop your expertise and move yourself along the continuum? Now, what you will also see here is I've written one for secondary element uh, principles and one for elementary principles as to what, particularly if you're beginning principal, the kinds of things that you should be paying attention to. I always remember when I was a beginning principal thinking, I just wish somebody would give me a basic tool here that I could begin to know what it is that I need to pay attention to and give me some ideas about where I want to move in my own expertise. So when we talk about achievement, it's not enough to keep track of the students. You also have to keep track of where you're moving your staff and where you're moving yourself, okay? But what I see over and over again is that some key components are left out and they create holes then for the campus. I'm going to stop a minute now and have you write in the, before we move to the next section, I have a couple quick and dirty tools for you. Um, by the way, there's, this is what this research-based strategies book looks like, and you can get it on the web. And it's a very, uh, it, it works for RTI. And then we also wrote a book on systemic processes that you can use to uh, improve your achievement. And it has the gridding explained in there in a great deal of detail.
Okay, and I want to talk about some things about discipline referrals. There's a quick and dirty tool I used when I was a principal to get a handle on discipline, and I want to give it to you because if you just address these three issues, okay, you will have addressed your primary issues, okay? Number one, 90% of referrals come from 10% of the students. And you already know who they are. So one of the things I recommend you do is that you find out who those, those students are and you make a list of them. And two things we know about those students are this. Number one, they almost never have a relationship with any adult, okay? And number two, a lot of times they don't have the opportunity to learn um, what they need to learn and in terms of behavior. So what we do is we assign them a relationship. So we ask these two questions. We ask, number one, I ask these two questions of a student. Who do you care the most about and who cares the most about you? And what you're listening for is uh, an adult. If they don't have an adult in their life anywhere, you can basically know they're not going to achieve very much. And so what we do is we assign somebody in the building, could be a custodian, staff member, secretary, we sign somebody in the building uh, to make uh, 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 talk to that student five to ten minutes every day so that we can establish a relationship with an adult. And the second thing we do is 95% of referrals come the first or last five minutes of class. And there's a classroom management tool that I have the teachers fill out and it's in that research-based strategy book. I make them tell me how they're going to do their classroom uh, management system before school ever starts. Um, and I keep it on file in my office. And then I tell them, if a parent comes in and tells me it didn't work that way, then you and I are going to have a conversation. And it's in the research-based strategies book. Okay. And then 80% of referrals come from 11% of the staff. And I know a lot of you are laughing about that right now because you know who they are. Okay. And they're almost always adults who don't have an adult voice. And so if you go in the uh, research-based strategies book or the framework book, that's explained in detail. And then we, we actually uh, did a book, and I want to tell you just about that book um, just briefly. And, um, and this book is called... Um, it's called Working with Students, and I just want to tell you briefly about that. I really recommend it to you for, for teachers under uh, five years' experience. It's divided by section, K2, 3, 5, 6, 8, 9, 12. And I paid practicing teachers to write in there all their classroom management techniques they use at that grade level. And that has a section in there for each of those areas with what do you do when. For example, K2, what do you do when a student bites another student? Well, no, you don't bite them back, okay? Um, another one in high school is, what do you do when a high school kid makes a sexual pass at a teacher? How do you handle that? Um, and so it's a way for beginning teachers particularly, or those teachers that are having a great deal of difficulty getting the classroom management and discipline going in their, their classroom. It's very to the point. Um, here's how you do it. And rather than me spending lots of time with that, uh, I will tell you about that resource. Now, we're going to talk about parents, okay? And I have two tools, and I want to share with you about parents. 
Um, those of you who are in Texas, you know that the new House Bill 5 now requires that you get uh, parent involvement from your parents and keep track of that as part of your accountability. So I have two tools for you to do that. But the first tool I want to show you is one I just absolutely love. It's uh, fabulous, okay? It's called the Karpman Triangle. And what the Karpman Triangle does is this. It allows you to deal with demanding uh, parents in a way that is respectful. And I have drawn this triangle out before for parents, okay? But it's rescuer, a bully, and a victim. And there's two rules about the triangle, and I'll type them in here. One, if you get in the triangle, you will not solve the problem. And if you get in the triangle, you will take on all three roles. And the other thing is this. The only way to stay out, to stay out of the triangle, you must ask questions. So let me give you an example about how it works, okay? When my son was in the second grade, he said to me, Mom, I'm bored. I said, hmm, I said, well, whose problem is that? He said, the teacher's. I said, is the teacher bored? He said, no, I am. I said, then it's not the teacher's problem. But basically what happened is this. He was presenting himself as a victim. What he wanted me to do was go rescue him. I was supposed to rescue him by bullying the teacher. Now, if I had done that, here's how it would have gone. I would have gone up to school and bullied the teacher. Then the teacher would have felt like a victim. So the teacher would have gone to her principal to be rescued. Then the principal would have done that by calling me and bullying me. Then I would have felt like a victim. I would have gone to my husband to be rescued. He would have rescued me by going to the principal and bullying the principal. Then the principal would have felt like a victim. Then the principal would have gone to his superintendent to be rescued, yada, 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 yada. Never stopped. And the problem never got solved. It's a wonderful tool. And I've drawn it out for parents before and said, look, you know what? They'll come into your office, they'll, you will do this, and I want you to do this, and I'm telling you you must do that. And I'm saying, well, okay. We can, and I'll draw out the triangle and say, you know what, we can go here, but we really actually won't solve the problem. So can we work on solving the problem? So I'll start by asking questions. What do you know about it? What happened next, et cetera? Okay, Deb, how do you use it by drawing it for a parent? Let me give you an example. I had a father come in and he said, my fourth grade daughter is being sexually harassed by Brandon. You must promise me that Brandon will never get in speaking distance of her again. I said, well, I said, look, Brandon has rights too. And I said, but sexual harassment charge is a very serious charge and we have to address it. Then I, you could draw... Now, in this particular case, I didn't, but you could draw out the triangle then and say, look, we can go here. You want to rescue your daughter. You see her as a victim. You see Brandon as the bully. 
And I could have said, we can go here, but it actually won't solve the problem. I said, the first thing I need to know from you in the law, okay, your daughter has to tell Brandon she doesn't like it, okay? Uh, so what does Kate do when Brandon says this? And he said, he said, actually, I don't know. I said, well, let's find out. So I called Brand, uh, Kate and I said, when Brandon says these things to you, what do you do? She said, I just smile. I thought her dad was going to kill her. I said, you have to tell him you don't like it. Okay. She said, I can't do that. And her dad said, yes, you can. So we sent her back to the classroom and I said this to him. Your daughter is beautiful. All her life, she's going to have unwanted advances. What are you going to, what are we going to do so that she is safe all her life? I said, I'm going to deal with Brandon, but that won't be enough. Your daughter also has to have skills so that she knows how to deal with it. I said, what are you going to do when she's in high school and there's a date rape situation and, and, and you're not there? Well, we agreed. We solved a problem, we gave both of them skills, and we moved on. That's how you use this. Or you can, one of the most difficult is when you have staff members who fight, okay? They'll come in and they'll say, I want to tell you what so-and-so did, and I want to tell you, you need to fix this right now. And I'll go, okay, we can go here, but we're not going to solve the problem. We're both, we're all of us going to have to be involved if we're going to solve the problem. To ask questions are to be used in empower the person to overcoming the issue. Actually, you ask questions so you can clarify the issues so that you can actually get to the point where you're solving the problem, okay, rather than doing a blame game, okay. And so it allows you then to ask questions. What happened? What did you know about this? How did you get the information? Uh, what do you see as the problem? I'll often ask this question to parents. If you were king and queen of the world, how would you solve this problem? Uh, so you're trying to get it out. I want to recommend this program to you. It's just phenomenal. I have never, ever seen anything work like this, and it's particularly for your parents in poverty. We've done this with 30,000 adults in poverty, and it costs about $7,500 for 12 parents, okay? Um, it's 12 to 14 lessons that they go through, and what we do them is we give them human capacity. One, it's on our website. You can find out more about it. There's videos you can look at on our website. But one of my big concerns, and I'm going to say it to you point blank, is this. One out of every 54% of the children born under, 54% of the children in America under the age of five right now in America are on WIC, which is the government program, food program for children under five. One out of two. And number two. Only about 35% of households anymore have school-aged children. So when it comes to keeping your school sustainable, getting the money you need, um, we are going to have to address our parents from poverty in a very different way. Historically, what we've been doing to get their involvement is we have been teaching them how to give their children skills. It doesn't work because it doesn't work very well, let me say that. Because the problem is this, 
You can't give capacity to someone else if you don't have it yourself. So what we do is we give them capacity for themselves. We teach them about hidden rules. We teach them about their resource base. We have them identify how they spend their time right now because time is identified with knowledge. We ask them to uh, analyze their resources. Analyze the resources of the community. We ask them to have a future story for themselves. And what we're finding is it totally changes, totally, how they interact with the school and how they interact with their children. And we actually pay them to learn. We give them a gift card each time they come. And we find a business in the area that's willing to, to give pay 350 bucks for the gift card for 12 lessons, 10 to 12 lessons, okay? And it's making a huge difference in how they interact. Um, and the cost that I mentioned that it comes from, the $7,500 basically comes for 12 people is this. The workbook is only $18. The majority of the cost comes from the $350 we give them in gift cards, $25 gift card each time they come. Or you can use grocery store coupons, okay? The second one is the cost of the facilitator, cost of child care, and food if you bring food in, okay? Um, it's amazing. And when I work with school districts, I say this. For $7,500, which is the money you lose for one dropout each year, it's not the total you lost over four years. It's the loss you lost for one year. For $7,500, you can interact with 12 high-poverty parents, make a huge difference, keep at least one kid in school who would have dropped out. It's so cost-effective, it's not even funny. Um, and I'm going to say we're going to have to target our high-poverty parents differently if we're going to get results. And we've done this program with about 30,000 adults in poverty. I can tell you uh, it's amazing. And you'll find this on our webpage. So I notice we're about out of time, okay? And so let me say a couple things in the end. What can we do for you now? We do work for schools with schools on a long-term basis to do school improvement, okay? Um, we also have a whole series of workshops, but you can go on our website. You can call T. Bowman, who's our Vice President of Development. Uh, he would love to talk with you. And we can help you do more work. I didn't even talk about the boy issue. The boy issue is huge, okay? But if you go on our webpage, you will find this as well about different kinds of solutions we offer. And um, we're just thrilled. So we've got about three minutes left. If you have any questions you want to type into me or ask me, or on our webpage, there's an Ask Ruby button. You can ask me anything there you wish. I, I want to say to you, I um, being a principal, is one of the most rewarding things you'll ever do. It is also one of the hardest things you'll ever do and uh, one of the most emotionally um, draining things, I think. 
you can do. So I have a great deal of respect for you. Okay. And thank you so much.